you know that Bitcoin uses as much energy as some entire countries? Bitcoin has a massive network of miners called ASICs that require a lot of energy to mine and secure the Bitcoin network. So for Bitcoin to be successful, it's critical to have access to cheap and reliable energy. That's why miners are moving in flocks to Texas and running their mining operations off of natural gas wells, wind turbines, solar farms, and on-grid applications. But up to now, there hasn't been a place for Bitcoin miners and energy producers to connect with each other. That's why Digital Wildcatters is bringing everyone to the energy capital of the world, Houston, Texas, for two days of network and learning at the premier mining event and power. Maybe you're an experienced miner or energy producer that's looking for partnerships, or maybe you're new to the space and you want to learn and get your foot in the door. There's going to be content and opportunities for people from all different backgrounds. March 30th, the 31st, Houston, Texas, and power. Get more information at digitalwildcatters.com. I, 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 I. Hey, everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. In a first, I have decided that I've been failing so poorly that I need a lesson and a special co-host to help coach me through this. So Colin McClellan, welcome in as the co-host. This feels like BDE. It does kind of feel like BDE, <laughs> but uh, even more important than that, when you're failing, you go out and get the biggest, heaviest hitter you can. <laughs> and we've got John Saucer from Mobius. Welcome in, John. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks, Colin. Great to be here. Pleasure. The So, John, tell us a little bit about you, background, and what does Mobius do? All right, I'll just give you a quick background on myself. Um, I've been in, involved with energy markets, specifically oil markets, for more than 30 years. Got started doing research for Argus and a Wall Street bank, uh, then went into futures and options trading um, for the bank, um, worked for a hedge fund. And then as that wound down about seven years ago, was looking for a way to sort of apply all the skills I'd learned in a one-stop type of situation. Known the guys at Mobius for more than 20 years, um, reached out to them and, and started working there. So uh, Mobius is a boutique risk advisory firm. We work with folks that have large commodity exposure. That could be a producer who's selling NGLs, crude and natural gas. Could be an industrial customer who has a big power or natural gas requirement to heat steel, pulp, paper, silica, things like that. So we're commodities guys, and we provide merchant energy services to people as agent. So uh, we provide them sort of a high level of trading, a high level of risk management, a high level of marketing that they can bolt on to their shop. And it's a pretty good model in the PE space because a lot of people don't want redundancy. They don't want to set up five different marketing teams. So this is a way to you know, market for an entire portfolio or manage risk for an entire portfolio and aggregate that risk so they can see it from the top down. I got you. The The thing I find wild is physical market, and let's just pick oil, you know, call it 100 million barrels a day. The financial market's actually 10 times that. I would say at least because, um, you know, they can easily measure all the exchange traded derivatives, but it's much more difficult to measure all the bilateral swaps and derivatives that people do directly with the bank. So um, I would say that's a conservative estimate, but uh, absolutely. And that's always been the case. I think it's also interesting. There's an interesting statistic about when you think about the futures contract, only about 5% or less ever goes to delivery. So, you know, these contracts are not about uh, accessing the physical. It's the financial utility of them. And so who plays in that? I mean, obviously, producers look out 18 months and go, that's a pretty good price. I can lock in my price for my barrel. I get that. Who's on the other side of that trade? Well, well logically, you would expect to see end users there, whether they're fleet 
airlines or industrials. But what we see is there's sort of a transactional mismatch. And what I mean is that oil and gas producers are selling forward strips, you know, commodity strips. They're selling a, a constant amount across the forward curve. Um, the end users aren't as consistent in their hedging. In many cases, they're not required to do it like oil and gas producers. And they tend to be more concentrated in the front and kind of, for lack of a better term, batchy. So it doesn't really align well. You get all the producers selling out the curve in strips and you got the end users buying in the front. So that's the roles played by the banks and the other traders to sort of fill in the middle there. Take the uh, other side of those trades. Because, I mean, the thing that shocks me today is what's oil? 95 bucks a barrel, whatever it is today. You look out four years, it's still got a six handle front it's still in the 60s and just that backwardation makes absolutely no sense to me because i don't buy into demand is going to diminish over the next two to three years and on the supply front i mean opec hadn't even hit their production quotas what six out of the last eight months or five out of seven whatever it is and the only explanation i heard from that that made some sense to me is goes well your natural buyer of barrels out into the future of the airlines and they're kind of a shit show right now just coming off of covid not sure where demand is but the backwardation is you get out past a couple of years there is no natural buyer there no any truth to that well yeah and it's not because it's not an attractive because if you think about it as an airline hedger buying forward at a discount would be pretty attractive but it's just not their practice to hedge forward they hedge you know in more prompt short-term chunks. So um, I think the most important thing to realize about the backwardation, because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about the forward price curve, it in no way predicts the future. No one has a crystal ball, even the market. All it does is two, well, actually three things. Tells you where you can trade the future today, which is pretty freaking powerful if you ask me. I mean, if you're trying to lock down some sort of deal and you can lock down the next five years of your forward sales, that's a powerful tool. It doesn't tell you where the market's going to be in five years. It just tells you how you can trade five years today. The other thing about the shape of the curve and the backwardation, and this is the part I think that's really important, is that it's the shape that's important. The shape of the curve is not telling you that crude's going to be a certain flat price next year. All the backwardation tells you is that at whatever price, crude right now is worth 12 bucks more than it's worth 12 months from now. That's true at 100, that's true at 60. So the forward curve only tells you the premium or the discount for the prompt. It in no way projects forward prices. So those forward prices in a tight market, which is what we have, demand's going up quickly and supply's slow, the back end of the curve comes up to meet the front, not the other way around. And I think there's that misconception. People think, well, that's predicting the future. No, it's just where you can trade the future today. By the time we get to the future, it's likely to be very different. I love that you brought up that it's not a crystal ball. I put out a tweet the other day that said forward strips are astrology for oil and gas guys. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we have another. Uh, trying to read the stars here. <laughs> I had a colleague who uh, sent me a photo that said uh, technical analysis was astrology for males. Yeah, so I think exactly, we're in the same camp exactly, here. Yeah. <laughs> but um, that's the thing is if you use the forward curve like that, in a way, you're treating it that way, but it's not. And um, like I said, it's very powerful because it's what balances inventory. Like when the market gets glutted, like in 2015 and 2016, it's the signal that paid people to take those barrels and stick them in tanks or stick them on ships. Just like right now, that premium is telling you, if you have a barrel of oil, sell it. If you have product, sell it. The market is paying you a premium to deliver the barrel now. And it's going to penalize you to hold on to it or hoard. Yeah. The other thing that I find interesting surrounding this whole area and trading is just the amount of credit 
that's necessary because I think the oil uh, contract, what, 25th of each month, it kind of settles. And- well, yeah, so physical sales. So think about this. You're an oil and gas producer. You ate petroleum and you're selling crude all month. By the way, I could not find any of my ancestors wandering through New Mexico for me to actually be part of the Yates of Yates of New Mexico. And yeah, yeah, I'd be such a good rich guy. I've always, yeah. I've always wondered that if there was a connection there. Unfortunately <laughs> not. I'd be so generous with charity. If they're adopting, I'm still useful. I've got years left. Because but, of my yeah. opinion. Yeah, no, I, now I lost my shirt. Where were we on that question? About, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> we're going the age. Well, then, I'm wandering over here about being That's rich. a fun no, wonder, but, though. But just the amount of credit that's necessary oh, to, so credit to do all is, this yeah, on so, both sides. So so from a credit perspective, you wonder why it's the case. Um, so if you think about it, if you're producing crude oil, and let's say someone's hauling it away by truck, they're going to haul away all this month. And 20 days of next month before they pay you for the first barrel of this month. So you basically have 50 days exposure times volume times price. That's a big credit ask. As a small producer, you're effectively extending a lot of credit to companies. So it's really important to understand that. The other thing, though, from the credit side is, you know, flipping around, your counterparties are worried about your credit. A, they're buying the crude from you. So they're paying you. But they're more thinking about, is he going to be there like 10 years down the road if you have a long-term contract? You know, transportation like that. So they spend a lot of time during the onboarding process focused on credit because everybody's got that pain point on both sides. And um, so it really drives a lot of the work in the onboarding process of trading. It uh, drives some of the fills that people get. And what I mean when you do a trade on behalf of a client or a counterparty, each person has a different credit profile. So when you trade with a bank, their fill may be different based on what the bank's perceived credit charges with your counterparty. So it's like the market's here, but each company's credit will dictate where their fill is with the bank based on how the bank views them based on the onboarding process. So it's a key part of the trade in terms of the actual price too. So Colin, back when we'd have portfolio companies, um, there was actually a lot in the way of, you know, you borrow money from a commercial bank and then whoever you're trading with, pick somebody, BP, not to pick a name, but any of them, yeah. any of them, Shell, whoever is on the other side, uh, you always had to figure out the uh, collateral agreement so that the bank and your trade, your potential trader is, uh, is sharing that collateral. I mean, it was just a massive undertaking when, yeah. it, when it came to credit. I also would point out that one of the reasons that the oil industry as a whole tends to gravitate towards the bilateral swaps for risk management versus futures and option is the posting of collateral because with the futures and options, you'd have to post collateral daily based on your margin requirements where with the bilateral, obviously that's built into the transaction. So that's, that's Can you part explain of what that means? A bilateral swap. So bilateral swap means no idea what that means. Yeah. I'm sorry. So when you're, when you're trading futures and options, you're effectively trading on exchange. So your counterpart is the exchange for everybody. The buyer faces the exchange, the seller faces the exchange. When you do a bilateral, it's just two people. I could do a bilateral trade with Chuck. I could do a bilateral trade with you. I could do a bilateral trade with the bank. So it's just a bilateral relationship. So the reason people do bilateral is that the banks and the counterparties will bake in that collateral and that credit mm-hmm. into the trade costs so people don't have to post. Because people don't want to have to post LCs or cash, you know, to back up their hedges. You know, that credit could be, or that capital can be better used elsewhere. So the bilateral in a way is a means to access 
a credit back solution so you don't have to post collateral using futures and options. So if if Bank X was loaning us the money, generally half the time we wound it we wound up just doing a bilateral with the bank because they already had the credit. Mm-hmm. So they know we're going to produce the barrel. They have sight lines to it. Yeah, exactly. And they get to walk in and say, by the way, that stuff's mine if we don't pay them yeah. back. So Yeah. And one thing to do is you can build out other counterparties, you know, but, you know, your bank's going to be in that group uh, amongst the others. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I the mean, counterparties are going to be more enthusiastic if they, too, get some sort of sight line to the uh, underlying asset. Yeah, I mean, old school, back in the day, what would happen is your bank would quote you okay, you want to lock in? It's $75 a barrel. And you're like, man, that's a good price. Okay, we'll take it. I'm sorry, it's $62 a barrel. And you're like, what? Hold on, <laughs> touch that about what? <laughs> well, we have your collateral, you know? And so it was never that bad. Yeah. But, but banks made, I mean, 25 cents, 50 cents, 75 cents a trade. And then uh, the sharing of the, of the collateral trading partners popped up and kind of kept the banks honest. But that was, a, that was a big development during the private equity days. Yeah. So, John, tell me, like, in the life of a trader, and you have to take all of these things into consideration, credit capacity, agency risk, with all of these different counterparties, like an event like Yuri, um, you know, you have a um, extremely volatile energy market how do those things work? Because it sounds like it's still kind of like a manual process of you're spending a lot of time on phones with other parties trying to figure out like, Hey, what do you got? Here's what I got. Is that like, is that a correct assumption of how trading still works where you're on phones trying to see what everyone has? And what- well, the only difference would be maybe you're on IM, but yeah, in many ways it is, it is still the same. In many ways, the mechanics of trading, you know, we may have some technological devices, but you know, talking to people and closing the deal and how everything is reconciled every month is done the same way it's been done for 35, 40 years. That's crazy to me. So you got better technology and you're using it on the edges, but it's not in, you know, it hasn't been integrated into the guts. Yeah. Fundamentally. Yeah. People are looking at it obviously, but yeah, yeah, it's going to, you know, it's, it's been a long time coming, but um, um, it is an issue because again, people spend a lot of time on stuff that doesn't create a lot of economic value, you know, just supporting, making sure all the paperwork's done so that everybody in the credit department's okay. Yeah. With your trade or with your counterparty. Yeah. And I know that, you know, you've spent a lot of time, um, I know, you know, we've talked to Mobius, you know, about Bitcoin and what's happening in the space and blockchain. Um, have you spent a lot of time thinking about that in terms of how that, uh, affects, because I know like, uh, Kurt Coburn's over here at uh, Eliox, you know, working on a platform for instant settlement on commodities uh, trading. Have you spent any time thinking about that and how that improves that process? Yes. Um, and since you mentioned um, the ISDAs, because the one thing you need is, so blockchain has brought some tools to the industry. Uh, they're going to help in this regard. And what we've seen is that those tools are being used sort of in the supply chain with, you know, acquisition of stuff at the lease for drilling and development and things like that. Um, I think we'll be seeing it in, you know, the ESG and carbon counting space as well. We're going to need those tools. But I think one area that we could really use those tools is in this trading space. Because as I said, reconciliation hasn't changed in 40 years. I mean, people are still being paid 25 days after the end of the month for the gas, 20 days. And, um, you know, blockchain specifically, um, smart contracts and decentralized uh, finance, DeFi, um, does create some opportunity here because, I'll start with crude because I think crude is more simple. 
you know, reconcile crude, you just need price and volume. So the thought process is, you know, some of these tools would allow us to reconcile that almost in real time. That's down the road. But even right now, we could certainly reconcile stuff on the last day of the month with all the data that we have if the data was just applied in ways that we know we can now apply it. You know, if we keep doing it the same, we're always going to do it. It's never going to change. But the point being is there's no reason why a smart contract can't ping a deferred ledger for midstream or deferred ledger for pricing service and calculate that price at 1201 on mm -hmm. the last day of the month. And my point is that people say, well, yeah, it'll shorten the things. It'll create a lot of efficiencies from a human thing, but eliminating a lot of the credit pain will eliminate a lot of those processes now. And we go back to the trader. I mean, a trader has all these trading opportunities, but some of those opportunities and optionality goes away if his credit department says no. So my point is, it's going to help the trader. It's going to help the people reconciling. I mean, people say, well, won't it you know, eliminate jobs? No, I think what it does is transform jobs because you got people doing what I consider dead-end work on reconciliation. You can do um, much more commercial stuff going forward with their revenue accounting skills. Mm -hmm. So um, yes, we're focusing on the very narrow area. But what I would say is one thing that's really important about commodities trade, futures contracts, and this particular application is fungibility and consistency. So you brought up ISDAs. That's a very standardized contract that everyone agrees to, which is going to help facilitate the transformation into the blockchain because you need that consistency. Um, likewise, in the natural gas space, you have NASBs. So everyone's already signed on to that unified contract. So gas may be more complicated because you can trade it daily and monthly. In crude, you only trade monthly. But from a contractual and a fungibility and the fact that it's all C1, it's all the same commodity. Crude, every crude is different. Mm -hmm. um, every crude contract is different. People use different terms and conditions. So in crude, I can see a pretty good pathway um, to solving this, uh, maybe in the financial space first. But it's going to take some uh, time on the crude space because crude is also dictated to by what goes on downstream. Division orders, paying royalties and things like that. That has to be incorporated too for it to work. So as it turns out, as we move through time, we will have to see, you know, much like you do with futures contracts and swaps, you have to standardize around a certain thing. You got to get there. And I think we've kind of got there a little bit more quickly in gas because they've done this process before and standardize everything. Crude is, is still a coming attraction. There's a lot of people motivated to do it for efficiency reasons, but you can also understand there's a lot of people, traders and other people who recognize that that will eliminate some of the inefficiencies and create transparencies that take some of their trading opportunities away. So you got to get everyone to buy in, yeah. or at least the people that matter to buy in. Yeah. Or enough sure. people to, you know, outvote the ones that don't. Because there's always going to be, you know, pluses and minuses. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the evolution of markets, I mean, Enron essentially creating natural gas markets in the 90s, and it sounds like, you know, things really kind of still work the same way as they did back then. Um, with blockchain and instant settlement, I mean, you brought it up. It's like it actually opens up opportunities that might not have existed because you didn't have credit capacity to execute on that trade. And I understand what you're saying, that there's some people that may be incentivized not to have technology like that because it'll actually you know, take opportunities away. But Or they perceive like, that. It may, that. Whether it's true or not, if they perceive that, they're yeah, going to push back. Yeah. So I guess my thing is it seems like it'd be a – Seems like it'd be a benefit to everyone in the space to open up more. more oh, unequivocally, and as, as I would say, is you know our role is we want to accelerate the process, um, but we recognize and we recognize this is not a if but a when. But we also recognize that the pathways for different commodities are going to be different. But this is something that's going to be 
universally accepted across the entire commodity space, not just the inner space. And the other thing I want to point out too is I find it difficult to believe that we would implement these tools on the supply chain side in the carbon and ESG part of the company and exclude the revenue generation part. <laughs> That's just my hunch. Yeah. I think those people, <clears throat> that group will be forced into it eventually because it will be company-wide at some point. Yeah. I don't know if you were there, Chuck, uh, but at Energy Tech Night the other night, there was a company that presented uh, block apps and they have a product called Carbon Trace. And it's for um, supply chain application used to um, track emissions uh, for ESG reporting. And I thought that was a super interesting application. And so back to your point, it's like you see it in a supply chain logistics, you see it in ESG reporting, makes sense that you would see it over there too. But um you know, we've had some blockchain applications within oil and gas. You know, I mean, Total was uh, trading, doing commodity trades uh, a couple of years ago. They'd started doing it uh, using blockchain. So it was actually, I thought it was really interesting to see how quick oil and gas was adopting blockchain. I mean, there was actually a lot of excitement around it around 2017, 2018. Yes, which, absolutely. You know, the oil and gas industry is usually kind of slow to well, adopt. Well, people were, like were, that, were investing. They recognized it was, this is something that had a lot of potential. Yeah. And I think they started again, they were looking at like just examples of, you know, speeding up the payment cycle to get a better deal on a lot of the services and well, stuff that was gas, being delivered yeah, I mean, on the treadmill nothing, every day. Nothing more annoying than oil and gas net 90 to 120 you know, day payments. It's yeah, like, so I don't really have anything to complain about <laughs> on my 5, 20, 25 days. So. Well, but, you know, I think what's going to happen too is you're going to see investor demands, stakeholder demands, because this isn't crude oil, this is natural gas and power type stuff. But when ERCOT had its blow up, I've got a really good friend that's a trader. He was at the office for about nine days straight, sleeping under his desk, literally on the phone with CEOs of trading partners saying, hey, what's your book look like right now? Because there's no real-time information for that. And you don't know if somebody's you know, short uh, natural gas going into that, short power going into that. And he said he made three decisions to stop trading with folks based almost on gut, you know, just didn't feel comfortable with however it shook out and wound up potentially being the right call and saving money. But I mean, all you need is an implosion and your shareholders go, you're not on the blockchain settling every day. And I think it, I think it's almost going to be required. I mean, yeah. you're, you're, and they'll expect it. They'll expect of you earlier than you may even be ready, but you're right. That expect or requirement will be there. Yeah. We, uh, we actually, uh, when I was at Kane Anderson, we were the largest shareholder for a long time of Plains All American. And part of the reason we did that was they had their trading, uh, debacle kind of in the late nineties where rogue trader was putting, uh, uh, entering into trades and putting the trades literally in a, in a drawer, you know? And, uh, wake up at some point and you don't have cash in the bank. You're like, whoa, what happened? And so, I mean, from a management tool perspective too, that's always the problem running a trading organization is the rogue trader. And you need transparency and this has got to help that. Yeah. Um, in terms of seeing your and That's risk. always been the promise of blockchain is well, transparency, it's just, right? You just bring, you're just bringing the information to everybody uh, uniformly. I mean, we have a big thing in Mobius about universal data truth because we see a lot of people who are working off different versions, of the same spread, a different version of a spreadsheet in any given week. It's like, hey, we all need to be working on the same universal data truth. In a way, blockchain is that on a global basis. You know, you know, everyone's pinging the same deferred. I mean, the distributed ledgers, 
Yeah. They're seeing corrections, revisions, and trips at the same time. It eliminates a lot of this shuffle we have every month. So how do you think this rolls out? If you got to look into your crystal ball and say, how do, how do we wind up everyone trading on that? Is it I think a proprietary software model? Is it going to be an exchange that leads with it? How well, do you think it rolls out? Well, I think um, I think that there'll be a number of people that sort of come to the fore who will sort of be you know leading you know in terms of managing and running the blockchain. And some people described to me, I thought this was a good way of sort of the operating system, and that you know people will write the smart contracts or, or the apps. So um, I don't necessarily I don't know. It's early days, uh, and you know we're talking to a number of people too because. You know, there's people in Europe working on it. There are people here working on it. And in the oil trade, you got to kind of be cognizant of both. Right. So how I see it sort of coming to pass is I do think that you'll see, you know, the inroads in the natural gas. I think you'll see the inroads in the financials. And the reason I think you'll see that is, A, because of the simplicity. And something what we're seeing in other markets. And in capital markets, the one area that these contracts and the blockchain has really taken off is in the repo market. Because that's a repetitive trade you have to do every day that's really pretty straightforward. It's very mechanical. So instead of having human beings process those now, that was one of the first things. And people like UBS and some of the other big banks are already doing it. So selectively, we find areas that we can use it. I just think that over time that spreads as we are able to deal with the complexity and the idiosyncrasies and what makes like crude esoteric versus natural gas. We'll figure it out, but certain things will be figured out first. So the other, I'm going to make you continue to look into your crystal ball and put you in the spot on that. Do it ultimately. Is there a separate blockchain that is created that's a centralized network, but it's blockchain? Or do you ultimately think that some sort of protocol for this sits on top of the Bitcoin network? Do we ultimately wind up running all the trades through the Bitcoin network? Any idea there? Well, no, but then there's, there's a different question. I mean, I haven't really been thinking about the way I've been thinking more of the blockchain, but the thing about not the Bitcoin, but the coins or tokens in general, there is a lot of utility and just broader reconciliation for a lot of those coins and tokens. So I'm not talking about that. Yeah. But, but that is there. Yeah. I mean, no. I mean, that'll speed things up because much like money markets and just have, yeah, it'll speed things up. But um, to answer, I mean, to add on to that, you know, in applications like this, it's more about adoption from everyone in in the space or buy in right? adoption yeah. what do you want to call it right yeah it really doesn't even matter about the uh like to be honest you know it's, sometimes you don't even need a blockchain like you just need a centralized uh database and someone that's holding that and it's the source of truth right and there's some companies that have that now that feel that they're close without even having blockchain yeah that's what i'm saying yeah. like you technically could solve this without blockchain but um, with having multiple independent parties and transactions, you know, you probably need, um, some form of blockchain application. And, um, I don't necessarily know if it matters what blockchain it's on. I'm not so sure it does yeah. like Chevy Ford Dodge. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. the driver or the application. Yeah. It's, it's who is the, the, the players in the system adopted and, and is using. Um, but you know, on that question, you know, I know you guys at Mobius, not well, but I know that, you know, you guys do hedging and uh, risk mitigation. You brought it up that you guys did this for private equity uh, backed oil and gas companies. 
How do y'all think about, you know, Chuck and I sit here talk about Bitcoin mining a lot. And that's why we were asking the question because him and I are going back and forth on, you know, the Bitcoin protocol compared to other uh, blockchains. Oh. But, you know, from a trader's perspective, um, what does the trading on in hedging on Bitcoin uh, futures look like? Because as Chuck and I look at it, it's like, you know, you have six months of liquidity in uh, the futures market. How do you think that develops over time? As a, as I mean, well, I mean, you're kind of agnostic to commodities, right? I mean, commodities, commodity. I would say that commodity. I think it's um, amazing that you've already got some forward liquidity to lean into because I remember with crude, I mean, for years we had 12 months. I mean, we got to 24, 36, it was like hallelujah. And now I'm trading 20, 30. So (laughs) So let's talk about walk before you run. Yeah, but let's talk about that because I have no knowledge about that. Like, all I know is we've got six months of Bitcoin futures. So that's pretty good. I have no idea how other commodities, future markets uh, progress and evolved over time. Like, sounds like oil, you know, you started off like you got 12 months and you guys. Well, I want to say even probably before my time, you're probably at three to six, but yeah, it's been slowly. So now, you know, the curves get further and further forward as more people have use for that. Yeah. Um, and more people will have more use for that with Bitcoin too. And as more people adopt that futures contract, you're going to want to see that you'll see the uptick in open interest, the uptick in daily volumes, and theoretically them extending trade further out the curve. What they typically do on these exchanges is they will mark a curve uh, as long as there's some trade. So what I mean is that you can have some pretty obscure derivatives, whether it's a derivative on a Bitcoin or a derivative on some oil spread that's not widely traded, but as long as it's traded at all, they are obligated to make a mark or settlement for that price across the curve as long as there's any open interest. So it's really quite useful because even a low volume of trade, if it's spread out across six months or 12 months, creates the obligation of the exchange to mark that curve every day, which we want because we want the transparency. We have to be realistic because if there's no trade, it's still nebulous, but you can lean into it because it is a third-party independent mark. It's not your opinion, your opinion, or my opinion. Are you tired of relying on landmarks, smoke signals, and pump jacks to get to location? When you do use apps such as Google Maps, Waves, or Apple, they only get you in close proximity to the well site location, but figuring out how to get to the location often comes with its own headaches of navigating lease roads. And if you're a dispatcher managing a fleet, how do you show your drivers exactly where to go to get there? Getting lost while driving to locations is a common theme in our industry. Navigating through unnamed roads can be frustrating and brutal. In our industry where time's money, getting lost is anything but efficient and acceptable. In fact, oil field workers say they spend on average over 20 minutes a day lost on lease roads, if not hours. Sound familiar? I got some game-changing news for you right here, so listen up. Wellsite Navigator is introducing the new technology you've been asking for, lease road navigation. They've already mapped over 19,000 miles of oil field lease roads that don't appear anywhere else, and every week they're adding more. Wellsite Navigator is the most trusted, most downloaded oil field mobile app of all time. Founded almost 10 years ago as the first navigation app for the oil field, they've helped more than 100,000 oil field hands find millions of well sites in 22 states quickly, safely, and reliably. Most of their users come from word of mouth, so help spread the word. They're giving all Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast listeners, their first month free when you click on the link in the show notes. Plus, when you refer a friend, they get their first month free and you get a $10 Amazon gift card. Follow the link in our show notes to get started. Make your life easier. That's really interesting. Because part of 
correct me where I'm wrong, but part of the reason oil developed longer term is you had a natural subset of sellers and a natural subset of buyers that practically speaking needed certainty at points into the future. Think about, yeah, transportation agreements. Those are frequently five, seven, 10, 12, 15 years long. That's a longer tenor. So that yeah. makes you think about longer term. That's absolutely right. But that's both sides. That's the producer seller or the transporter or the buyer. Yeah. Which it, it, like what's cool about hearing that kind of, you know, talking about historical development of futures markets is it sounds like it's market driven. Like you're saying it's like you had two sides of a market that needed this medium of exchange and, you know, me coming in here, I'm like, oh, well, that market's always just existed. It's always been there for oil and gas, but it's not the case. It's developed over time and you've got more liquidity over a longer tenure um, just because the market demanded it. And so. I can give you another good example. NGLs, which is is big, yeah. you know, ethane, propane, butane, all those. Um, uh, for most of my career, uh, you had to hedge those, dirty hedge those. You had to use some sort of basket of commodities or percent some, of crude. Yeah, we, we or it. some sort of crude optionalities. But I mean, Hold on, John, quick story. One of the best deals I ever did in my life um, was a company called Stallion. And basically, we were up in the panhandle of Texas producing the brown dolomite. And we had this basically bunch of NGLs coming out of the ground. And back then, you didn't have an NGL market. And so we did all this analysis that showed that the NGLs basically sold for 80% of crude. So we locked in all of our hedges uh, based on 80% of crude, and the market went topsy-turvy, and they didn't trade at 80% of, of NGLs. They moved in such a way that we made a fortune, <laughs> and we sold the company. We made three and a half times our money in 18 months. And it wasn't until the closing dinner that the CFO sat down with a sheet of paper and explained to me, you do realize you just took a long bet on NGLs and you won, right? <laughs> and I was kind of like, no, I, I didn't. So just like, yeah, I yeah that, was real. <laughs> that was real. That was real. You know, live with the sword, die with the sword. It's like, yeah. we've seen it the other way too. I can tell you during the, the difficult times in 2015, 2016, 2017, um, I don't know if you remember this because everyone was focused on the bear part, but in the spring of 15 and in the spring of 16, we had some pretty material rebounds in price. Now, they were temporary, you know, a bounce in a bear market. But a lot of people got run over because, you know, their dirty hedge or their crude swap, you know, was pricing with crude as it went up. And the NGLs were just hanging because they're not crude. Yeah. So that spread created the exact opposite. So the reason I bring that up is now we can trade the individual components as swaps with the banks like any other. So, you know, I can trade ethane. I can trade you know, butane, propane, isobutane, C5 individually. So if you're a producer, for example, and you've got a basket of NGLs and half of it's ethane, you may choose not to hedge the ethane because it's not worth that much and focus on hedging the stuff that's more tied to crude. But all these tools are now available. These were not available seven years ago, certainly not 20 years ago. And even there, the tenor on these NGLs, I can do a year, maybe two. I get out to three years, four, it gets really squirrely. Yeah. So, um, that's how it evolves. Now, if we have this conversation two years from now, we'll be trading NGLs three years forward, but that's that's how it comes about. It just builds up over time. So what happens on Bitcoin developing? Because at this point, I don't know that there's a natural selling group and a natural buying group that needs a market. It seems like it's purely 
speculating on both sides. And maybe that's big enough to actually create a forward market. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I guess people look at it as a store of value. And I know people look at Bitcoin a little bit different than the other ones because of the proof of work. Um, the fact that sort of the originators or the founders are sort of out of the picture now. So it does perform or behave much more like a virtual commodity. Um, and it, it has been behaving as a store of value. Some of the other ones, and I'm a big fan of Ethereum because of the smart contracts and the other Ethereum derivatives, but in many ways they perform and act like a security, in a sense, like a high-tech security, because they're trying to provide a service, a layer, a token, something to, you know, participate and improve the system. And I mean, there's thousands of them, you know, at some point there'll be winners and losers, but um, it's not currency and it's not really a commodity. But I saw an interesting comment about a week or so ago. Um, from a gentleman who's at a tech company, and he, and he and I thought he really nailed it succinctly. It's like Bitcoin specifically is the first one you really look at where you can own an asset, a virtual asset, and feel the value and trade the value. They they really differentiate the Bitcoin from the other ones because of the proof of work and all that. So, um, yeah, the you're hitting the nail on the head. I mean, let me get on my soapbox here for a minute, but. The value of Bitcoin is in the net is in the network. And I had someone ask me today, yeah, it's like, hey, why proof of work over proof of stake? Is like because that's where the value lies within Bitcoin. And you can talk about is Bitcoin a cryptocurrency? Is it a store of value? It's like really to me, it doesn't matter because it's the infrastructure for the next evolution of the internet. It's the Bitcoin protocol, and then we start having you know that's later one, and you can later uh, two applications on top of that like Bitcoin uh, Lightning Network things of that nature. You go to Ethereum, um, you know, Ethereum is more, it's kind of software as a service, right? In terms of these smart contracts, it's also centralized, has a team behind it. It's not a truly the decentralized. Team, so when you still have a team managing, that's what makes it feel a little bit more security for me. Yeah, see, and that's what I love that you brought up that, hey, Bitcoin founders, like, I was just Thank you very much, like, but he's gone. Yeah, it's like, that's one of the most fascinating things is that Satoshi's gone. No one knows anything about it, and it's a truly decentralized application protocol that's a good way of describing that, it that's running truly decentralized yeah yeah and so that's always i think that's kind of been misleading uh, for the blockchain industry um historically is that we talk about decentralization but <laughs> it's very much centralized outside of bitcoin um and that's you know kind of going back to chuck's point that's what he was asking that question is like hey are these applications that we build for trading um or to check you know carbon or supply uh, logistics are these built on central platforms or you know are they layered on top of the bitcoin protocol but yeah i mean that's that's when i look at bitcoin you know i talk about it as being like i brought up like oh it's a commodity like it kind of acts like that in the futures market but really it's like you're buying a piece of the network and that's where the value is at but that, it just feels more tangible than the other ones because you're buying something you're not buying a strategy our management team. Yeah. And trust me, if you're around in the 2016, 2017 ICO days, I bought tokens that I still haven't got distributed in 2017. I'm still waiting on them. I just straight up got scammed. And I was telling Chuck, I was like, I saw billions of dollars invested in the space and no products shipped. I mean, you're buying a story, buying a team, um, you know, people saying like, oh, we're going to build a shipping logistics platform that's going to work on the blockchain, raise $30 million and boom, it's just gone, you know, nothing there. So that's also another thing too. But so I was interested with like Total and some of these bigger oil companies, bigger internationals that have started trading because 
it didn't really matter what the protocol was. They built a platform and then said, hey, we're going to adopt this and we're going to use that. And ultimately, that's what matters is whatever protocol gets adopted is the one that's used. Well, I know they've got the the VAC group over there, and I, I suspect that yeah. um, Total's part of that along with yeah. some of the big merchants, yeah. Argus, some of the other people. And they've got a lot of heavy hitters. But, I mean, the other thing I, I, I wonder with, with some of these larger groups is, yeah, they're all in the business, but they all have very – divergent views and business models it's like how do you get to where you need to be when everyone's running almost in different directions in different directions yeah and has different allegiances i mean you could see where distributed ledgers can really help the data providers in terms of market intel but also properly monetizing their asset Mm -hmm. at the same time the old company's like i don't like that that just means i'm paying more (laughs) so it's like yeah that's the way it works Transparency yeah. cuts both ways. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, transparency is uh, better for some than others, no doubt. But uh, it's, I find it super exciting because, and like, I like to use the word accelerant because it's like, we need to get here more rapidly. Yeah. Because it seems like, A, in a way, ESG, carbon, and in a way, the pandemic created this opportunity for people to focus on it. Mm-hmm. But I want people to, we need to follow through because sometimes you get the easy, low-hanging fruit. But now the the, the task becomes more difficult as we deal with the more specialized commodities, the ones a little more idiosyncratic, like crude versus natural gas. It can still be done. We got a lot of smart people working on it. Mm-hmm. When I say we, I'm not talking about Mobius. I'm saying in our industry here in Houston, Texas. Yeah. I mean, this is a real, this town's leading the way in many regards. Yeah. Super bullish on Houston for many different uh, reasons and aspects, but I agree with you 100% there. I think that one thing that's really keeping, you know, for years people have said institutional capital is coming to Bitcoin. It's coming to Bitcoin. And, you know, you started to see some of those dominoes fall. What was it? Uh, Texas uh, firefighters pension. Um, is that? Yeah, I, I think it was the Houston it, firefighters. Yeah. You know, they pen- put, yeah, they bought Bitcoin a few months back and you start seeing this. But um, you saw that the Fed today actually said out loud that maybe they should have some crypto in their balance sheet. Oh, really? <laughs> and no one laughed or said, yeah. No. <laughs> really? Yeah. No, yep. I saw the headline. I was like, what? There's whole conspiracy theories that the CIA created Bitcoin. Oh, really? People yeah. think the feds already hold Bitcoin on their balance sheet. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to get into that a different different show. Yeah, well. we'll It'll be our conspiracy theory I almost show. wish that were true. I don't have that as <laughs> level of expectations. Yeah. <laughs> but I think like one thing that's really been a barrier is how um, – it's treated um, as a financial product, how it's hedged. And that's really been, you know, a, a main barrier And uh, to hear you talk. It's like, Hey, you got six months. Like that's already, you know, a great start. Um, and, you know, have this conversation seven years from now could have you know, three months years. of liquidity yeah. at that yeah, point. And so, I mean, I'll just take it to, to visualize this a couple of years from now, you have a forward curve in Bitcoin that's three or four years forward, maybe longer. You may have some other curves and other coins as a relationship to Bitcoin. However, People trade this, you know, spreads can be as a ratio percentage or, you know, fixed thing. So the relationships will be traded as well. I yeah. And that's the way it works in oil and all commodities. You yeah. Know? Trading between the grades, different yeah. grades of copper, different grades of crude, different grades of crypto. Yeah. So we've had questions about correlation between, you know, other cryptocurrencies to Bitcoin. So, so I've done, we've done a, we, we do a little bit of work on crypto pairs yeah. and, um, and we run through our stuff and it is very interesting. The thing is, I mean. There's not a long history. Yeah. Also, we've already learned that there's not really normal distribution in commodities that are pretty abnormal. So I would assume that the distributions in this, when we look at it, maybe abnormal, which is fascinating, which means we need to get to it. <laughs> but I think it's still early days, but it's something we're looking at. Because 
it's got to happen because going back to kind of the question of a market is, I mean, I think I can talk for you too, Colin. We actually think Texas is going to be Bitcoin mining capital of the world. We we have this running thing we talk about where if you think through what makes a good Bitcoin miner, all these different check marks like the price of your power contract, the ability check. to run off renewables check. if need be, off grid, et cetera. Go through Stranded all that. Stranded gas, check. Yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. Good. All that Reg- regulatory. regulatory. Check, check. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you know the 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 acreage map for Bitcoin mining looks a lot like the acreage map for shale. It's West Texas, so we're going to have a lot out there. So you're going to have producers of. Bitcoin that are going to want to monetize future Bitcoins because that comes back to cost of capital type issues, allows me to borrow more money, whatever the the case may be. And it's going to be interesting to see how the buyers of the other side develop on that. Is it pure just monetary speculators or to Colin's point, people that are starting to use the Bitcoin network as infrastructure and running things through it want to be on the other side of that trade? Yeah, no, I think a little bit of both. Absolutely. Um, I will say that I agree with you. I mean, Texas, we, we had obviously years of a lot of flaring and a lot of stranded gas. And even years before that, I mean, gas and NGLs were treated more of a nuisance rather than a lot of economic value. You moved them so you could get it your crude. But I do think, you know, people look at the gas a lot differently now. And, um, you know, we're seeing some of the mining being done, not just in the Permian, but like in the Balkan and places like that. Because the one thing that really sort of prompts people is isolation. So isolated areas work really well because you're never going to build a pipe to move those molecules. So your only solution is something on the ground locally there to consume that. Bitcoin's a lot obvious. I mean, you can do other stuff too, but Bitcoin is a third-party bolt-on that can show up today. And And we're seeing people do it. And what we've seen some people do on trial runs too, where they don't build out the infrastructure themselves. They just do a third party for a year to see how that location works. Yeah. And it yeah, works pretty well. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's, it's, it's easy to improve on zero. <laughs> right. <laughs> As a trader, I mean, very, that's a little very, bar. I'm having a little bar to keep. <laughs> yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. And I think Also, that's... by the way, in some of those places, it's a negative. In some of those places, we have, I mean, I've, we've paid to have NGLs and gas, you know, when the market's a certain way, it goes the other side. So- it's worse than zero. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, I mean, sometimes well, you have negative differentials, right? Which is um, it's like you're it's like you called waste management to come haul the stuff away. Yeah. You got a big bill. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, at Kane, a lot of what we were doing were early stage assets. We'd go drill the first horizontal well in a county, you know, be the first to apply a modern frack in certain areas. And what would happen is you drill a big well, and the existing infrastructure inevitably was old and couldn't handle the volumes and the pressure of the new well. And so you'd sit there and we always thought we could drill two wells and figure it out. You can never drill two wells and figure (laughs) it out. You're lucky if you figure it out by 10 wells, but at call it five to seven wells. Okay. Maybe this works. We got to build pipe there. It's another 10 or 15 million bucks. And if, if you're trying to keep your test budget to 25, 30, $35 million, that's a big part of it to go build a pipeline. You're investing in a big asset that, you yeah. may or may not have long-term use for yeah. it. Yeah. And it doesn't have a lot of salvage value if the play doesn't work. I'm just <laughs> if saying. You're, if you're not there, it's got no value. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's rusty metal in the ground. Yeah, you no, I, would metal. Lo- I would love to have had the tool of Bitcoin mining to put at each one of our well sites when we would drill our initial wells 
to kind of solve the regulatory environment of, hey, you, you can't flare for more than 90 days or whatever the case may be. Yeah. yeah. I, I also am trying to get people, uh, producers and our clients to think more about, so obviously Bitcoin mining is a solution for stranded gas, but anyway, you can use more of your commodity produced at the lease site so that you're not shipping it into the midstream vortex where, I mean, think about it, like Permian, you're shipping NGLs to the Gulf Coast by the time you pay all the transportation, fractionation, all the fees, you're getting like two cents. Mm -hmm. So if you can figure out a way to use it locally, so my thought process, there needs to be a lot more stuff at the Crane, Midland, Orla, Wink end of the line so that we can use the stuff out there because shipping NGLs all the way to the Gulf Coast for a two cent net back. That's what I always thought with like Bitcoin. Doesn't seem like a good economic value if you could convert it locally to anything else. Right. That's what I've always thought about Bitcoin mining is that you're actually shortening up the process, right? You're bringing the downstream activity straight to the wellhead and you're bypassing midstream, you're bypassing, you know, the crackers at the refineries and um, able to generate a product. You're bypassing right so many people on the financial side too. I mean, you're, it's just it's bypassing everyone. Yeah. Well, and I hate yeah. I hate to I hate to say this for fear it's used against us, but quite frankly, ESG emissions type stuff. If you can keep stuff out of a pipeline and keep it local, well, that's that's another reason we're thinking about it because people have recognized that some of the heaviest emissions are on that midstream transportation part too. So absolutely, and just even without ESG, does it make sense to ship an NGL molecule from the Permian to the Gulf Coast to make two cents? Yeah, that's a lot of power, energy, of, fuel, time, effort, people for nothing. Yeah, maybe slightly better than burning it in a little pile, but not much. So my point is, if you could burn a little pile and make something there, yeah, power, Produce Bitcoin, yeah. lease fuel. I mean, think outside the box. Yeah, no, it's really. I mean, it goes back. I like the skid base solution. Fly in something, drop it, and <laughs> yeah. operate it. I mean, they drop these skid base. Um, fuel uh, plants in Nigeria because it's like a little mini refinery. It's like come up with a engineering solution yes. for more localized use of fuel that'll supplement the Bitcoin and it'll achieve what we're trying to do is shipping. I mean, again, that's an unnecessary shipment if you're making two cents. Yeah. It's your only choice now. I'm saying in, a, in the future, if you had a local use for it, you would absolutely use it. Yeah, and the the interesting thing, and is, you can sell it cheaply to someone locally who wanted to buy it, right? Because the net back avoiding all that transportation, and your ESG score will be like, Shh. well, <laughs> you know, we were we were talking about this today, and I'm kind of making up these numbers, but I think there's 35 gigawatts of generating capacity out in West Texas, and I think there's 12 gigs of of uh, train. Uh, Takeaway capacity. Takeaway capacity from there. And to the extent you keep building more out in West Texas, whether it's solar or wind or whatever the case may be, if you have Bitcoin to be able to justify it, the next step is, well, why don't we put a manufacturing plant That's there? Cool. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and, it, and, and, and it it goes even beyond just Bitcoin mining. You're going to have cities pop up around. That's the kind of the way I'm thinking, too. And I was yeah. thinking of like up in the Panhandle when you drive by – you know, obviously Texas is the largest wind production state and we do it right because when you go into some of those wind areas and like, I know when I was driving up towards Amarillo, you can actually see the regular power plant sitting out there in the middle of the field with all the windmills so they can optimize. So it's that combination of things that really helps. So that's what I'm trying to think. It's like, Hey, out in the field, there's a lot of stuff you can do. You're talking about 
Bitcoin mining. You can have a conventional power plant that runs gas next to your windmill so that 24-7 you have this bucket of options to optimize. Yeah. yeah. So when like it gets windy at 2 a.m. and gas is, I mean, uh, power is like negative 30, the Bitcoin shed is like boom. Right. That's what I just had Mesa Solutions on the podcast uh, before this, and we were talking about cogeneration. Like they're putting these big natural gas generators next to power plants and helping them supplement power. So, like cogeneration was huge in the nineties. That's how McNair made all his money. That's what paid for the Houston Texans. But that's the concept. <laughs> so we're taking a concept that we had thirty years ago and just tweaking it. Yeah, but like to. Um, you know, I had a geothermal company on and they were talking about, yeah, you know, our, our strategy is we make this geothermal power plant, but then it's, uh, it's already, uh, co-located with a manufacturing plant. And so we're not even, I look at Bitcoin mining as a kind of a manufacturing process, right? You're making Bitcoin, but it's going to be even more analog manufacturing, um, you know, factories, things of that nature, start to see them kind of come closer to well, the energy source. Well, if you're adding source. the geothermal, you're adding, in, you're adding in the heat element too, which is what industry needs as well. I mean, a lot of the energy goes to making heat. So mm -hmm. if you've already got the heat. Yeah. And you've got the power. Yeah. From the standard. You know, yeah. It's, it's, I think it's a pretty exciting It's a time. great, it's a great situation to be in. Yeah. I mean, I, it's a great opportunity. Well, I think it's exciting time to be in energy because there's so in this much, state in particular. Yeah, there's just so much opportunity uh, like this and that are being enabled by things like Bitcoin mining and renewables and geothermal. That just it kind of feels like there's just a lot of people, a lot of smart people in different industries, just running 100 miles an hour in different um, directions that all kind of lead to the same point. But it's like, why would you not have a wind a windmill or a wind turbine farm? Uh, you know, with power plant right there that's optimized that's almost like you're making this mini this mini grid you're making um, both things better yeah yeah and and i'll take it one step further it's amazing time to be in energy it's amazing time to be in texas because we're so big we've got so much in the way of resources and so long as we stay in the state we don't have to mess with the FERC. yeah and i i think that's i think that's going to be kind of one of the things if america misses this great opportunity or doesn't maximize on a national level on a national level it's because of the FERC, mm -hmm. you know and i know that we're designed the, the founders designed us this way to be a republic and to have a lot of competing interests and be slow and plotting but i mean the fact that we have all that gas in appalachia and massachusetts won't build a spur yeah, you know, 15 to 20% of their power generation is burning fuel oil. Russian fuel. Russian fuel, no less. And, and they, LNG. So, and someone, they someone they, they're someone the only state that still imports LNG. They yeah, import yeah, LNG. The only and they don't import it yeah. from us. They import yeah. it from somewhere else. Well, that's someone commented on Twitter yesterday. They're like, yeah, they just approved a new uh, nat gas peaker plant in Massachusetts. It's insane. I was like, is that insane? It's like, what's insane is you import all your LNG from Russia and Africa. And yeah, in our in Jones Act, all the LNG that Texas exports goes to Europe. I was like, this is just clown world in terms yeah. of our energy efficiency in the U.S. Yeah, it, so we, we actually, on the BDE show, I had Jeff Davies uh, sit in as co-host, and we were talking about it. And I actually, and the, the FERC just ruled last week, they changed the 23-year rules we had in place about uh, building pipelines, and they added things like, you got to consider landowners. You got to consider environmental concerns. And they separate ruling, but related was you got to consider climate change in this. And so, you know, the opponents of this have said, you're never going to build another pipeline 
in uh, in the United States. I actually think the tweak that makes all of that work is if you just say you got to consider all that and it's got to be relative to the existing situation. So if you make it better then you can go ahead and approve it. And right now it's an absolute standard. So if you cause any sort of climate change problem, then they're not going to approve it. But if you could say, we're taking 15% of the heating oil off the market and we're not going to burn that in Massachusetts either, I think that should be the standard. Yeah, it should be. I mean, if they correct the behavior and get rid of the Russian fuel and substitute it with domestic gas, nothing, why shouldn't they be remunerated for it? Yeah. Finally. <laughs> exactly. Finally do doing the right thing. Exactly. Um, it's not just one state. I, I think we're, you know, singly out Massachusetts, but it's, you know, pretty much everything north of Pennsylvania is problematic in terms of gas. In terms of a lot of things. And far out on the West Coast as well, California. There we go. <laughs> yeah. All right, John, before we go, give us one crazy trader story from, uh, from, from your career. Because uh, I've always found that traders – have the best stories in one way, shape, or form, and change the names to protect the innocent. We don't need to, <laughs> to dime anyone out, but you've got to have one good one in there. Well, it's not exactly a trader story, but it's a story that I think people may relate to because it was pretty well known at the time, and it wasn't directly involving us, but it really had an impact on that particular day. So I don't know if you guys recall back in, um, I guess about 2006, the whole thing with Amaranth, Ryan Hunter. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Widowmaker trade, the March-April mm -hmm. trade in natural gas. So some of his background. When I was at the hedge fund, I started working there in 2001, and we traded a lot of natural gas. I was a crude guy. Thank you. <laughs> um, but we traded the Widowmaker big time, all right? We got schooled really badly in 2000. I won't even tell you what it is. I mean, we're still in business. The people still <laughs> have money. There's, there's like, man, that hurt. So uh, a couple years later, 2003, we, we were trading it again, the Widowmaker, the March-April natural gas spread. We as a group, not me personally. But we'd learned our lesson in 2000, so we had a lot more assets under management. We had a much smaller position, all right? So um, February rolls around, and uh, oh, it's another. I mean, we just got schooled. And again, the year ended okay. It was a bigger draw than we wanted, but it was things. So at this point, I work for a gentleman named Anthony Nunziata, who's one of greatest oil traders in Houston history. He was like, you know what? These things are not spreads. You're trading two different commodities. He said, you cannot treat them like spreads. So we will not trade them as spreads. We either not trade them or we'll trade them as outrights. So from that point forward, we were on the sidelines. So in 2006, um, that was the big Widowmaker year because that was when it was the battle royale between Amaranth and Brian Hunter and John Arnold at Centaurus. And it went on the spring, the summer, the fall. And during the summer, there was another smaller fund run by a guy um, called Mother, Mother Roth that got caught in the crossfire. It was five or 600 million, but it wasn't like Centaurus. It wasn't like Amaranth. This is where it became very personal. Flash forward in September, I was asked to fly to Singapore and do this big marketing thing for our fund. So I'm like over in Singapore and Hong Kong, okay? My buddy and my colleague, Chad Chimayas, who's one of our gas guys, he was asked to go to Switzerland and do the same thing. So we had flown, we're there, we land, we're getting ready to do our big presentation. He's in Europe, I'm over here. And it's the day that story broke. No one would talk to us about anything else that entire day. I mean, <laughs> it was just the fascination level. And it turned out to be a big story. Now there's been books have been written about it. But the funny thing was, is that a lot of people in the industry watched this unfold for six months. It was like they were just sitting there with popcorn. 
Just wait. <laughs> so that's kind of weird because normally these things sort of bubble up suddenly. This wasn't. This was like this slow moving, multi-month, just like, and the thing is, since we'd already been, for lack of a better term, run over ourselves, not fatally, but enough to respect it, we're just like, wow, watching this. So um, we didn't lose the bunch of money in that thing, but the lessons that we learned previously and the tuitions we paid in 2000, 2003 saved our ass, for lack of a better term, because otherwise we would have had a big position on too, just like everybody else. <laughs> right or wrong. I'm not saying we'd have been right or wrong, but we'd have had the risk. So, um, but there's been so many, I mean, these markets are crazy. I started, I'll just tell you, my first day in oil markets was April Fool's Day of 1988. I was right out of college. I didn't know anything. I mean, seriously, I'm a UT racket. I'm showing up at work. They hired me. I'm like, that's a miracle. Why, you know, <laughs> my first day I sit down, I'm, you know, I'm doing oil, like waterborne oil, Atlantic Basin, pipeline. So I'm figuring this stuff out. My first day I'm watching the news and they're like firing French Exocet missiles at tankers in the Persian Gulf. And they're Kuwaiti tankers that President Reagan has reflagged as American vessels to preclude that. So I'm like, this is crazy. And I look at the screen, and by that, in that day, the screen was monochrome. It wasn't like, yeah. it wasn't, you know, wasn't, it was like, looked at the screen, yeah. and the price wasn't moving. And I was like, what is going on? This is huge. This is like World War III. And all the people that had been there looked at me and said, oh, this, is, this happens all the time. Old news. And I learned right away a valuable lesson. Markets get jaded really quick. What's exciting and important to you, uh, they learn much quicker than you. So I learned day one that that stuff doesn't matter anymore because everyone's used to it. A more, you know, a boring marginal news item may have had more impact than what I was seeing, which was something I'd never seen in my life. And that's how I got started in energy markets. That's great. The other story I tell is that everyone says, how do you become a trader? There's a lot of different ways to do it. There's no one way. Analysts, scheduler, what have you. But I tell people, I did oil market research for 12 years before anybody could trust me with their money. <laughs> so you got to pay your dues, but, you know, it's a lot of fun too. As I've always said, I told every portfolio company when we would meet about hedging, I say, whatever I say, just go do the opposite. And I promise <laughs> I won't gripe because well, I've never been right. Yeah. The other thing about research is you get to research like the stuff we were just talking about with Amaranth and stuff and do a deep dive. And I mean, truth is stranger than fiction it always, and more entertaining. It always is. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, John, how do people reach you? Well, Mobius Risk Group here in Houston, Texas, 5847 San Philippi. Um, we can, um, you know, again, uh, one thing I want to say about us is we're in the advisory space. Um, we work on a model, non-conflicted. We're basically your employees. So what we want to do is basically help people lever up the teams they have with the additional skill sets that we have so we can work together. We're not about replacing people. We're about levering up what we've got. Optionality, commodities, people. Yeah, because you never take title to the commodity. You're purely... Yeah, and that's what really helps us because so we don't take title. We don't take the other side of the trade. We never touch money. And because we're charging people a known fee, there's no mystery. We don't have to drive people towards transactions. We're not paid on the bro model. Um, and, you know, our fixed retainer is based on complexity, which is actually more fair. Because if you're someone who has a lot of crude in one spot, that's a very easier, that's a much easier job than someone that has a little bit of crude in five different basins. So as such, um, and for some people, we'll do one thing. We may mark their book. Uh, we may market physical molecules. And for some people, it's a turnkey solution where we do everything in that merchant energy space form and try to do it as efficiently and cost effectively and skillfully as possible. Exactly. Appreciate you coming on. 
It's been great, guys. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure. 